just to show that the world of electronic drums doesn't revolve around contemporary chart music, I wanted to get a view from a different perspective. Matt Whittington can be found behind orchestras or in West End pits playing anything from cutting-edge electronics to vintage Verdi bass drums. We had a fascinating chat about gear, samples and triggers, including talking about the unorthodox triggering setup that Matt is using for Wind in the Willows when it returns to the West End. We also talked at length about click tracks and the issues they can cause when not controlled by those that actually need them. As an insight into the theatre world and the wider gigging world, this chat is full of really useful information, with some eye-opening stories thrown in for good measure. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast. Making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Right, so I'm here talking to Matt Whittington, and we're going to have a look at a different slant on the whole electronics thing. Um, so, hello, Matt. Good morning. How are you? I'm I'm fine. I'm a little bit more awake than you yeah, are. Thank you. Right, so I've got I've got a big list of questions here, which I wanted to ask you. And um, the first thing is, I mean, you are a serious proper musician, aren't you? I mean, you've done Royal Academy of Music. You're not coming at this from uh, your self-taught drummer who sits in the bedroom and plays an electronic kit. You're you know, properly trained and you do big gigs. Yeah, so I, I went to the Royal Academy, did timpani and percussion Yeah, uh, and played drums in secret when no one was watching, basically. So yeah, I had to, I spent probably two hours a day studying timpani, you know, listening to music, trying to learn all the symphonies and stuff like that. And, uh, my, my temp teacher was a guy called Kurt Hans Gerdiker, who escaped from East Berlin and was principal timpani of the LSO. So you, everyone's heard him play because he's on the yeah. Star Wars theme. That's the, the famous thing outside of the classical music world. You know, he played on the original Star Wars theme uh, and a lot of other stuff as well, obviously, with the LSO. So I had some terrifying but amazing lessons with him and then some fantastic orchestral percussion lessons. And we had Lee Howard Stevens, this amazing marimba guy, came in and taught us and all kinds of stuff like that. So electronics wasn't really a thing that anyone did at the academy. No. It's something I was I was interested in. You know, I like I like playing drums and I was interested in it for myself. I actually won a grant to buy a mallet cat when I when I was at the won some award and was presented with a check by a famous newsreader. Bought it, used it on a few things and then my friend dropped it. <laughs> Smashed it up. Why? Why a mallet cat? Had it been decided that it was going to be a mallet cat before, or was that something you'd said? I want to get one of these. I had to put a proposal in. There was a special fund for new and exciting projects, and any kind of new project or new technology and stuff like that. There was a fund available. It's one of those things when you go to universities and and colleges and stuff. There's there's all this funding available that no one knows about, and no one tells you about. You know, there's all these weird awards, especially at places like the academy. You know, there's some some old lady who died with her millions stuffed under the bed, gave it all to the academy, but it had to be used for such and such. I got the mallet cat thing, so I was always interested in it, and 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 that was really to replace all the tune instruments on on shows. You know, at the time I was like, this is great. I can turn up with one thing, and I can have marimba vibes, Glock, xylo, boobams, crotiles, everything on one thing, and it's going to be amazing. And how successful was it at replacing all of those instruments? At the time, I bought a second-hand one, and it was very old right. when I got it, and uh, it got a little bit of use. And then, like I said, my friend took it out on a gig and dropped it, and that was the end of it. But I mean, I think Malakats are fantastic. You know, I still use them now. I'm a massive fan, and obviously for them, it, a big part of the success of, the success of them is is what sound source you go for, yep. as we know. Uh, and these days, it's, it used to be samplers. 
I used to have a big cupboard of jazz drives with stuff on that I'd never quite mastered. You know, I never quite got round it. So you used to have to rock up with a mallet hat and a big sampler and your jazz drives and then load it up 20 minutes beforehand. Yeah. And hope all loaded in time because otherwise you, you weren't starting the rehearsal with the rest of the guys, you know. And the other thing I got was the old SPD, would have been an SPD 20. Right. The Octopad. And that actually got me my, my first ever film recording sessions. I got whilst I was still at college. There's a film called Gangs of New York. Yeah. So uh, there's a complete lost score for that written by Elmer Bernstein. Uh, I think it was possibly the last thing he did. So it was right at the end of his career and right at the start of mine. And he'd written this really weird score. It was fantastic. Um, he sent this thing to, to, to Steve Quigley, my teacher at the academy, who's principal perk of the, the RPO. And he said, oh, I, I want some pad. I want some, some electronic pad with these sounds and a bass guitar sound. For some reason, he wanted the drum pad to play the bass guitar sound. Right. And I never really got to the bottom of that. I was too young to ask any questions. I just sort of turned up and went, hi, you know, d- and did my best to not get shouted at. So, so my first ever film sessions were on the SPD-20. Wow. And, of course, I'd never done it before. So we set up in the room. And they just put me on the end of the line of percussion. And so I'm in the room with the, it was Sony Whitfield Street yep. Studios, yep. which are gone now. They're now flats. Uh, but it was an amazing, amazing room. We set up in there. And I just remember the room actually made the orchestra look a bit small, but it would have been the full orchestra, you know, it's this big old place. And they put me on the end of the, the line of percussionists just with my pad. And of course, what none of us thought about is that every time I hit the pad, you then got that strike noise going into every mic in the in the you know the big decatry above the strings yeah. and all that stuff is picking up me going bop 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 bop. So yeah, I didn't really think about that, but they seemed happy with it. And then um, just before the uh, it was uh, it's a Scorsese film, Gangs of New York, and he kept making changes, so they kept having to go back in the studio and redo bits of music. And in the end, I think he decided that they'd made so many changes that he, he just wasn't happy, so they canned the whole Elmer Bernstein score. No. Everyone got paid. It was all, you know, we'd done all the sessions, all paid for. They threw it all away and started again with a different guy about three weeks before it was released. So I think you can still find this whole score of, you know, this whole bunch of music he'd written and recorded because it was all ready to go on the film. It was all mixed and mastered, you know, and just all got thrown away. So somewhere there is a version with you thwacking rubber pads in the background behind <laughs> an orchestra. Yeah. I've got to dig that out. Yeah. I've got to dig that yeah, out. Des- Desperately trying to, because he'd written parts with, obviously on, on the SPD-20 you had eight pads, uh, and he'd written things with 16 notes. So I'd have to program two sets of notes and then do a quick patch change in the middle of playing something sometimes, you know, and try and work out ways to get around it. Now, now I'd, I'd, you know, there's easier ways to cope with situations like that, or you just take a little keyboard and play it through, you know, there's lots of ways. But at the time, I was like, oh, God, I don't, oh, so um, I'm not sure how successful it was, but it got me doing my first ever film session, you know, it's quite an experience. If that was your first, if the Mallet Cat was your first um, electronic gear, uh, then the yeah. SPD, how did that sort of progress into the other stuff you do? I mean, uh, what, at that point, were you doing mostly orchestral work? Were you doing, was this before you got into pit work? The first stuff I did, was I left college and and Steve, my teacher, very kindly gave me some work with the RPO and he's still doing it now, thank God. Because it's, as you know, I was out, so for the listeners at home, I was out with them yesterday playing ABBA uh, at the Albert Hall. So sat in the middle, middle of the Albert Hall playing playing drums to, to all those songs yesterday, which is fantastic fun. So Steve got me some work with them and I, I spent a very happy summer. My first summer out of college, I basically played triangle bass drum and maybe a bit of sleigh bells or something like that 
uh, but did gigs all over the country with them. Uh, and that was that. It was brilliant. And then I got into, I got a call to go and do a panto, you know, and at the time, every panto drummer had an SPD 20, which is probably why I, why I had one at that point. So you did all your gongs and your bells and your whistles and stuff on that. And you just hoped that no one dropped a sweet into the pit and it hit the corners. Cause that used to, do you remember it used to set all eight pads off at the same time. Yes. If you tap the corner, yeah. But they're still quite sought after those, actually, aren't they? They're really, you know, full of sounds and really usable sounds, most of them as well. Really good. So I had one of those for years and used it on and off on gigs. And then I guess I got into shows. Some of the first show I did was a thing called Jerry Springer the Opera. And I got a phone call. I'd sort of done the usual thing. When I was at college, I sat in on all the musicals because it was something I was really interested in. So I just went around, sat in and tried and failed not to be <laughs> too much of an idiot. I'm sure I went around saying all the wrong things and doing the wrong stuff, you know. Like, we like all did it. Does. We all did it. When we're 19 and 20 and invincible and never going to die, you know. So I did all of that and I got a phone call off someone I'd never actually met. Matt, uh, I'm supposed to be doing this show for, it's Morris Cambridge was the fixer for Joe Springer up in Edinburgh. Uh, my house move dates have changed and I can't leave my wife to move house. Would you do the show? So I went up to Edinburgh. It was the whole band were put up in a flat together for the festival, and we're mostly all still speaking. Actually, the guitarist my, was one of my one of my very best friends. We were best men at each other's weddings. So I went up and did did that up in Edinburgh, and then because so yes, I did that in Edinburgh, and then we went that went into the National Theatre. Mm-hmm. It was a big, big old smash hit, and then from the National Theatre it went to the West End, and it was really hard. So I had a big drum kit in front of me. I had a six piece, yeah, three toms across the top, floor tom load of cymbals, Chinese opera gong, vibes, xylo glock, two timps, conga, bongos, mark tree, bell tree, weird metal thing that I had to hit at some point, I think, as well. So it's a huge setup, four music stands, massive run around. Um, no electronics on that at all, actually. It was all acoustic. But the keyboard players were running, I think they had eight or nine samplers in a rack. Right. There's no bass player. All the bass sounds were on the keys to chair. Yeah. So they had eight or nine samplers going at the same time. And and what used to happen once in a once every couple of months there'd be a crash, and every note on every sampler would hang open, and it was a complete show stop. You couldn't. I mean, it was like ah constantly, and it was just give up. Everyone give up. They turn the sound right, right down turn off every sampler and reboot which was about 10 or 15 minutes so we'd have a 10 or 15 minute stop in the show you know which these days is almost unthinkable um not a show stop obviously that happens still um waiting 15 minutes for a sampler to boot is not very popular (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so we did that and I, i i started picking up bits of gear so i've got um i've got the hand sonic does that get used much it has done it has done it, it. I go through phases with a lot of this stuff. The, I, I tend to, you know, it's weird. I can go a, a year, two years and not get phone to play drums mm. very much. And then suddenly at the moment I'm doing drums on loads of stuff, yeah. you know, and then maybe next year I won't do any percussion. I'll only play drums. And then the year, I, you know, it just flips around all the time. And it's the same with electronic stuff. You know, you get a project in or you work with a, a person for a bit who likes certain sounds and things and one piece of gear. So at the moment, my my I've got the, the DTX M12, the Yamaha uh, Multi 12 pad, which is phenomenal, and that's coming out with me a lot. Uh, I did the so I'm doing this Wind in the Willows show this summer yep. at the Palladium, and I'm using that really heavily. I have next door to me on a screen. I have the picture you sent me of your kit for that for, for Wind in the Willows. <laughs> There's a lot of gear there. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've just done the cast album for that, and I actually did 
all the proper electronic stuff. So for, for Wind in the Willows, I mean, feel free to put that picture up if mm. it's helpful on, do, the, on, on the site. Great. So I've got a big, big drum kit. I've got three things called phantoms, which are like rotor toms on a dinner tray. Untunable. Well, not not rotational, tunable, normal drum. They're key. not rotational, no. But they've got they've got. In fact, mine have got very rusty bolts that don't tune very well. But I've managed to get sounds that work all right for the show. So yeah, I've got three phantoms above the hi hat. So where my crash would normally be, there's a there's a ten inch rotor tom, and then I've got four normal tom toms. A lot of cymbals, sizzle cymbals, china cymbals, stacks, loads of weird noises, bass drum, tam tam, two timps, Glock, congas, bongos, loads of weird hand percussion things because it's wind in the willows i've got a frog sound so i only play the congas in one number they're basically glorified trap trays for most of the show so yeah so that's sat there and then i've got the m12 and the m12 does two things in willows and one is that there's a few numbers where they wanted electronic sounds mostly to go under some some really cool tracks they've done um so it's when the when the bad guys come on i don't want to give away the show but when the you can read the book, so it's not too much of a spoiler, you know. <laughs> um, when the when the stoats and weasels take stuff over, they've done some 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 really lovely programming. So there's some really lovely tracks for us to play along to. And one of the numbers they basically wanted electronic sounding stuff. So we're talking eight oh eight, nine oh nine type stuff. Yeah, that kind of thing. I I just I basically got sent the tracks a week before we started rehearsals last year. And just came up with some sounds that I thought fitted and expected it to be a big debate and stuff. And we got to it, got to that song in the rehearsal, played it through. The rehearsals for, for a new show are quite intense. So for, for us, we were in a big room down in Plymouth. In a, um, there's an amazing rehearsal venue there. And we were in one of the big rooms that's the same size as, a, as the big theatre stage there. Wow. So it's, it's for the company to rehearse in a proper space. you know. So the whole band's in there. Lovely Toby Higgins, our conductor, conducting. And then trestle tables behind him and you've got the composer and the lyricist stars and drew who are a, you know, a team so you've got george stars the composer sat there and then chris yonke the orchestrator from new york david shrubsall the orchestrator from london tom kelly who's another orchestrator working on the show the director uh the choreographer at, at some points uh, and Simon Lee our music supervisor so you've got those eight people sat behind the table so when we got to that bit I was expecting a big debate and discussion and stuff and played all the sounds went through went through that number and Simon just looked at me and smiled excellent done so I'd pick the right sounds and, and he doesn't like technology he likes music yeah. he likes making music he doesn't want to spend hours programming stuff so half the M12's job is to do that stuff and the other half is to play we've got some samples that they put in mm-hmm. And then just, uh, I use it to replace sounds that I should be making acoustically, but I, I've just run out of hands. Yeah. So you'll see, when you look at that, the picture of the setup, <laughs> there's a lot to deal with. And a lot, you know, the bass drum doesn't sound good unless you use bass drum sticks. The timps don't sound good unless you use timp sticks, ideally. The glock, you've got to play with glock sticks. And the drums, you hopefully play with, with drum kit sticks or brushes or something, you know. So there's times where I've got to play a timp note and then I'm straight into the drums. And then there might be a bass drum note or or another glock note or something and then there's hand percussion bits so one of the sounds they like is a um, there's a few times i use a ratchet instead of a instead of a backbeat yeah so where where you would expect a snare drum you get a little mm. from a ratchet uh which sounds really cool but ratchet you need two hands to play <laughs> Wait, i'm in a box yeah. somewhere so it's got to be on mic or it won't be heard at yeah. all and the guys on stage are listening for that sometimes. So it's got to be really consistent. So we had a lovely sound crew on Willows. They were fantastic. And one of the production guys is a guy called Tom Lishman, who helped me set up the kit. 
So there's a load of triggers and things happening on, on those drums as well. And he, me and him worked in the pit together for two days in pretty much darkness, sorting it all out. Fantastic chap. I've just counted. In the picture that I can see, you've got 44 different instruments that you're playing. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. And there's probably a few on a trap tray that you can't yeah. see. There's some whistles and, and, and bits and pieces. Oh, don't forget the tambourine and the wood blocks and all that stuff as well. All of which were triggered, by the way. So trigger on the tambourine, trigger on the uh, wood blocks. We need to talk about this because the first things you ever mentioned to me was about triggers on timps. Yeah. So the, yeah. So the, so the M12 thing, I, I ended up making samples of myself with Tom. So there's bits of the show where from out front it sounds like I'm playing the instrument, but I'm actually hitting a pad on the M12. And for me, the whole thing with most electronics is they either want to sound completely electronic, like those drum sounds we just talked about, so it wants to sound like an 808, like an electronic kit. What are the old Phil Collins sounds? Is that an 808? CR78. There you go. I thought you might know. <laughs> <laughs> so you want it, you want that sound because it takes you into that world, yeah. you know. Yeah. Or I don't want to know that I don't want anyone to know I'm hitting a pad. I just want them to hear a sound and not not notice it at all, apart from oh, there's a ratchet or whatever. For the magic not to be broken. That's what you're after. Exactly. Yeah. It's bas- it's basically making up for my. Uh, you know, as I get older, I'm less and less inclined to throw myself around a pit to try and get every single sound in. And you get a much more consistent result. You know, you get a lovely sample of it. It sounds like me because it's my yeah. sound with my with the mic that they use on the show. Um, so you get exactly the same sound, but much more consistent in terms of dynamics and in terms of actually getting it to work. You know, it's not uncommon for me to, you know, go and do something like Wicked. And the pit for Wicked looks not dissimilar to, to that mm. setup, but without the drums. There's, there's more tune stuff and more gongs and things like that. And stuff falls over. You drop stuff. Mm. You put down something, come back to it, and it's rolled off the xylophone, and it's somewhere in the darkness on the floor. You've got no chance of playing it. <laughs> so for shows, it, it, I find it's great for making things a bit more consistent yeah. um, and survivable. So what you are saying earlier about trigger on the tambourine, let's talk about the triggers that you're using because you're not using them in conventional ways are you no although i think it's gareth the sound supervisor is really into this and i'd not seen it before but i think it's fantastic so from that rig i believe there's 56 channels of audio yeah. coming from me alone so when we did the cast album last week i said that to the matt the engineer at angels friend of mine i said oh by the way just to let you know it's 56 channels from me in the show and he said well I've only got 60 on the desk, so we might have to compromise. <laughs> you know, it's this huge, great, big, lovely, uh, I think it's an SSL in in, um, in Angel, but they've only got 60 channels in total, you know, and I'm, I'm pumping out 56 on my own. Now, quite a few of those 56 are actually triggers, yeah. but they're not triggering sounds, like you said. Yeah, I think we've got one on, we had one on both bass drums, yeah. we had one on the snare, I think, one on each Phantom, yeah. one on each Timp, one on each Conga, one on the Bongos, one on the, there's some wood blocks just above the floor toms. Yeah. The granite blocks, yeah. It's a cowbell, there's a tambourine, they've all got triggers on them. And, can you explain why? Yeah, so so the problem with getting a great sound on shows, on a percussion and drum rig like that, is if you put a mic on each instrument and they're all open all the time, it's just horrific. You've got massive phase issues, you've got horrible spill, you know, the snare drum, when I hit the snare drum and I, and I hit it properly, you know, I give it one, uh, that goes into every single mic. So you've got a snare drum coming down, however many channels of real audio there are going into the desk. So what the guys used, used to do is use lots of gating. Uh, used to go into play on certain shows and you could hear when the gates open, you play a snare drum roll and nothing would happen and suddenly it'd be there. You know, you get nothing, nothing, nothing. And that'd be the gates cutting in and out, which made sense out front, but it's really frustrating if, if you know, I'm quite a dynamic player. I've got quite a big dynamic range. And 
you basically have to lose all your quiet dynamics, yeah. which for certain music is is how it should be. That's brilliant. But for other things, you know, most shows you need to play quietly at some point because the whole point of of a musical is you're there to tell a story. I hate to say it, but we, we actually don't matter very much yeah. as a band. Yeah. What matters is the people come and they see a story. So if they miss out on the story because all they can hear is my amazing backbeats that I've spent years perfecting, you know, great job, Matt, well done. We might get someone else, but you sound great, well done, you know. So you need to be able to get out of the way and, and let the guys do their job on stage and support them. So it used to be that, yeah, you had these gates on stuff. And, and like I said, it was a bit frustrating. And, and you'd also, you just wouldn't get a very good sound sometimes. There'd be certain instruments that you just couldn't pick up and stuff like that. And these days, I'm usually, I'd say 80% of the time, I'm in a room on my own, yeah. away from the pit. So Wicked, uh, they've just built. Uh, he's in the pit, but he's basically in a booth on his own. Mm. The same with the drums. So one half of the Wicked Pit looks like a carpentry festival. You know, it's just these big tons of wood all painted black with the drums inside and the percussion inside. Dream Girls I'm depping on at the moment. The, the drums are in a booth in the pit. Again, the uh, I actually dep on percussion on that, and that's in a booth backstage yeah. where all the dancers are busy getting changed and stuff. So that's that's very common. Most of the shows I do now, if I'm not on the stage, so something like Thriller, I'm, I'm on the stage. Mm-hmm. Most of the time I'm under the stage in a room on my own for separation. Yeah. So the sound guys don't get percussion spilling into the woodwind mics and, and vice versa to a degree. And that gives them a chance to get to get much better sound, uh, you know, much better quality sound. So what Gareth does is he mics up everything. There was an individual cowbell mic. There was an individual... The wind chimes I had had a mic in the middle of them. Right. You know, there's a mic on each tim. There's a mic on each drum. There were three mics on the snare drum. Hence the 56 channels. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And what the, the way that he uses triggers is that... The triggers are simply used to open gates on the mics. And what that means is this one of the songs, for instance, there's a little cheeky fill uh, to go with a dance move, which is in the middle of a sort of sort of pumping rock tune. There's a thing where I play a little uh, I go boom on um, woodblocks and a cowbell. So before you'd ha- you would have had to have a mic open the whole time on the woodblocks and the cowbell. And now what happens is when I hit them, the mic opens the gate on those mics and they come on. Yeah. So you hear the woodblock and the cowbell really clearly. It's really loud out front, actually. And then those mics are off again. And instead of having to program that for the sound desk, it just happens naturally. So it cuts down hugely on the mixing and programming work the, the front of house guys have to do. It gives you a much better sound in the monitor mix as well. You know, my dynamics don't change, but they don't get all the nonsense on all those mics, you know. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast with Simon Edgoose. Just to simplify that, so um, with all the with the fifty six mics that you've got around you, um, they are uh, m- the majority of them are only going to be on when you actually hit that instrument or pick that instrument up, and the trigger on it registers that it's been there's movement exactly and that will open up the gate which will allow the mic to work but as soon as you put it down and there's no trigger then the gate will slowly shut and it'll turn that mic off yeah i think it's pretty vicious to be honest i think the gates are quite hard because you've still got the overheads so you've still got a general sound from the from the kit and the glock mics you can't you can't trigger every single note on the glock (laughs) take decades so the Glock mics, I think, I think they they program in which numbers I play the Glock in, but the Glock mics will be open. So you effectively got two sets of overheads most of the time. Yeah. So you get some sound from those constantly, but the close miking stuff is is all triggered. So the congas had triggers on on both heads. The timps have triggers, which is it's the first time I've seen it. I think Gareth used it once or twice before. Uh, we had the trigger on the edge of the timp head, and it worked incredibly well. Actually, I heard the desk recording. 
and there was a day where where one of the connections on the so the triggers i think a pentex i think yeah. he gets them from the states yeah. um like little black dots yeah and you stick them on with little double-sided sticky pads and one of them got slightly unplugged during a show and that temp you just don't hear for the rest of that half it's just gone wow so you get all of one temp and nothing of the other so it shows how effective it is it's incredibly effective to the point where it's actually a problem if that happens. Yeah. So I think what I'm going to do, I need to talk to to, to Gareth or Russ, is is number two about this. I think what we're going to do is have instead of having them on the edge of the head where they change, they, they make the head sound a bit wangy and weird. I, I, for people that don't play timps, you want the head to be really evenly tuned so that you get a nice clean, clear note, so you can actually hear what pitches I'm trying to, I'm attempting to play, you know. Um, and if you put if you stick something on the edge of the head in one spot, it it affects that that tuning quite badly sometimes. So I've got a bit of a weird sound. It sounded okay up front, but on top of them, they don't. It's not very nice. And I spoke to a friend of mine who does a lot of uh, this guy called Bill Lockhart, who you've heard play on movies. Uh, he's timpanist at ENO, but also does lots of film sessions. So you will have heard him play the timps. I spoke to him about it, uh, and he said, "Well, a lot of the Baroque guys, if they have to, if they have to play." plastic-headed drums, because they'd almost always want to play calf heads. If they have to play plastic, they put a moon gel in the middle of the head. And because it's right in the middle, the weight doesn't affect the head. It affects the whole head, but it doesn't affect one part of the head and change the pitch. So we're going to have the triggers stuck right in the middle. So I'm going to build a bridge of some kind over the timps and have the trigger sat in the middle of the head and then a wire coming up onto this bridge and off to, off to be plugged in. And I think I'm going to put two on each drum. So when one goes down which it will in a long-running show. You know, stuff breaks. Yeah. There's, there's two triggers sending out a signal at the same time, so hopefully one of them will keep working. Makes sense. And it was the same with the Phantoms had triggers. They put them on the head, and it completely killed the drum. You know, the Rototom yeah. sort of pingy sound completely went. So we ended up putting them on on a part of the... Sh- it's not really a shell of the drum, the but there's this weird thing that makes yeah. the bearing edge. Yeah. We put them on that, and that worked really well for them. But I'm going to build in a... I had lots of wires trailing off and every so often they'd slip and fall onto the hi-hats and suddenly the hi-hats are dead and you thought, oh, I cracked on symbol again, you know. Uh, so I'm going to build a little box. I've just been to Maplin's and bought myself loads of components. I'm going to make a little box so they all plugs in really neatly and we can get all the cabling done properly. So yeah, and and I was really sceptical to start with when he rocked up with all the, you know, putting triggers on a cowbell. It's like, this is ridiculous, you know. And yes, the finished result is really good. That's brilliant. And that means he can send an amazing sound out front, you know, because people expect it to sound brilliant these days. There's, there's not very much tolerance for going to, to a live event and not having good sound. Mm. I know I've been to see stuff at Hyde Park. You know, I saw, who have I seen there? Bon Jovi and Stevie Wonder and stuff like that. And if the sound's not good, you've wasted yeah. 150 quid, whatever it is. So it's got to sound good yeah. wherever you are now. And I think it's a great way, you know, I'm working with them as much as I can to, to help them make it sound brilliant. When you first started doing pit work, yeah, the, the electronics, the shift to electronics had already was already underway, wasn't it? The drums mainly. Well, let's see, I went to college in 97 and I left 2001 and Jerry was in town in 2003. So I was sitting in with guys and sort of, but sort of the end of the 1990s. There were lots of D-drum kits floating around at the time. I think on Miss Saigon, there'd been a big thing where the drums were quite loud. In the So for people that don't know, Miss Saigon originally had either three or four guys playing drums and percussion in the pit. It was unbelievable. 
set up. One end of the pit was like a massive percussion shop, you know, and the guys were so busy, they had, they, they had to turn each other's pages. It was actually written in that you had to go and turn the pages on the timps, otherwise the next guy to get there wouldn't be able to see the music to play that that bit. And I believe there was a bit of a problem that the acoustic drums were just too loud. Basically, whoever was on drum, I can't remember who started it on drums, but they were told, if you don't sort this out, then we're not having drums. We'll, we'll yeah. cut that. Cut your job. <laughs> so they went out and bought a D-drum set very quickly and used those. And how did that go down? Brilliantly. Well, it was there for years and years and years, as far as I know. This is a little bit before my time. Yeah, they stayed there till the end. So I believe when I saw it, the guy had a D-drum set with some, some live cymbals and he had a snare drum for playing brushes right. on because the old D-drum were brilliant for... A proper drum kit with sticks, but didn't do brushes. Didn't no. do brushes really. So he had one snare drum mic'd up to play brushes on on a few bits, and then the rest was all on the D drums. It seemed to work very well. I think I remember seeing Tony Burke, lovely Tony Burke, playing Grease, and I think he had some. He might have just had one D drum pad going into a brain for some snare drum sounds or something right. like that. But guys were, you know, it was, you know, there's that whole period, I guess. Through you know more about this than I do, but through the sort of 80s and 90s where everyone was using electronic drums and it was the new thing and, and meant you could have amazing sounds and it could sound exactly like the record. And of course, since then, there's been a bit, a bit of a backlash and, and we don't care if it sounds exactly like the record so much for some things now. There was lots of stuff going on. I, I was obviously more at the orchestral end of, of things, so I didn't I didn't get that in, involved with it, but it was definitely in use. And then that moved to gradually sort of most of the West End shows had sort of TD10s and stuff, didn't they? So did you ever dip on a on a show where you were using... No, I sat in... I remember Andy McGlasson, I think Neil Wilkinson started it, uh, Saturday Night yeah. Fever I'm talking about. I think Neil Wilkinson did the first 12 weeks or something and then Andy McGlasson took over. And that was really early. I think they'd just come out then, the, the, the TD10s. That would have been late... That would have been sometime after 97. Yeah. And, and I hope it's all right to say that I, I remember getting there and and you walk through a corridor and there was just like this graveyard of you know it was very early days in the technology and pads would just break and so there's this sort of graveyard of pads that were going to go back and be repaired that weren't working and then ones closer that were new and ready to go in when one broke in the show they were literally swapping them in and out especially the snare pad if the snare pad goes you're in quite a lot of trouble during the show you know and then i remember andy doing tell me on a sunday and that was all on v drums so they went through a phase of of oh we love v drums because means we don't have to deal with an acoustic kit and miking it up and spill and all you can have um i think saturday night fever was was basically a silent pit so you had in in the actual pit of the palladium you had all the electric guitars the bass the keyboards and the v drums all plugged direct into the desk no amps no nothing and then they built a booth for the two percussionists and they built a booth for the brass and it was so quiet that they could do a rehearsal during the interval of the show if they needed wow I'm sure at one point they put in a new number or they did an edit to a number and they had to run it during the interval for five minutes just to check that the parts lined up with a click and they could get away with that with the audience yeah. not knowing anything was happening. Yeah, oh, that's the the great positive about electronics is is you can... Oh, yeah. totally, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's some brilliant, brilliant things to it and that's definitely one. And that, for that kind of music, I think it's the right thing as well. You know, on Thriller, there's V-drums on Thriller for the Motown stuff. It's not the same no. as having acoustic drums. You know, it's not the same as having one of my 50 Slingerland snares. Or a nice shiny blue Gretsch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it, it's not the same. And and the other musicians mm. talk about that, you know, and they're quite open about that. But as soon as you get into the later stuff, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, the way you make me feel, for instance, you know, there's, there's gated Tom sounds. and Exactly. Exactly. All of that stuff. You couldn't do that on an acoustic kit. 
it needs to be on yeah. electronics to get all those different sounds. You know, we go from number to number to number to number with a completely different sound in each one. So it's just a quick patch change. And, and some of those sounds are so iconic. You know, the Billie Jean bass drum and snare drum sound. You know, how many how many songs have got that groove? But that's you, you can tell it's Billie Jean straight away with those sounds. But when you're doing that, are you triggering samples or are you just triggering internal sounds? All internal sounds. So they're just using the stuff from the 30s, the the, the the yes. not quite latest one isn't it i think any show when the new when the new stuff comes out so the t- the td yeah. td 50 now has come out from Roland, hasn't it they would be reluctant to put it into the show for a bit just like if you've got any sense you don't update your mac the day that the new os comes out you know you stand back and let someone else find out that that suddenly no printers work it's the same with with new brains and stuff it's, it's a good idea to give it a year or so just to just to find out you know, it doesn't matter how much R and D companies do. There's always a problem. The moment you give it to a consumer, they're gonna they're gonna find the one thing. Oh, if you push these six buttons and then whistle this note, the whole thing explodes. You know, someone's <laughs> gonna find out at home, aren't they? You know. So they've got a TD30 in there, and it's all internal sounds. Yeah. Um, in fact, Aki, the Alex Yates, the 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 guy who does the percussion chair, actually does all the mm. sort of drum programming, I believe, and does a fantastic job. It sounds. You know, you, you can tell what song you are just from the drum sounds, which which is brilliant. So, what about when uh, when things go wrong? Because I mean, things do go wrong all the time, but the, you get one gets better at covering it up. What's what's happened that you've just gone? Oh no! Oh, so 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 many things, especially on big pro gigs. I'm afraid with electronic stuff, I always work under the assumption that things are going to go badly wrong, and I try and cover as much as I. I mean, you can't cover every eventuality. You know, if the building gets struck by lightning and the whole gig's cancelled, then it doesn't. You can't cover for that, but you can certainly cover for things like the DTX, um, the Multi 12. The um, the power supply lead is quite skinny. It's in the middle of that drum setup. I think you've got the picture, haven't you? So we'll yeah. stick that up. It's in the middle of that setup. The sound guys sometimes need to run around the back to sort something out. I don't know how it's going to be in the Palladium. It might be a really tight squeeze. It might be fairly accessible for them. If it's a tight squeeze. It's really easy for them to tread on the adapter or kick the cable or anything like that. And even though it's plugged in and hooked around that little hook thing that's supposed to stop you getting pulled out, the, the cable's thin enough that it'll get ripped. Someone with steel toe cap boots is going to go through that. Yeah. So for me, I have to have spares of everything conceivable that can go wrong that I can cover if I'm providing the gear. If it's a high company and it goes wrong, it's not my fault. You know, I'll do my best to make it work, but but it's not really my problem. So I've got enough other stuff to deal with usually at work. Um, but if I'm providing it, which I will be for, for Willows, then there's going to be, I'll have a spare DTX loaded up with all the, the, the most current show state. So the great thing with the DTX is you can save everything onto a USB stick uh, and you just pop that into the your spare module, um, hit load, it's all in there. And then I, I always leave the memory stick back in the, the unit that I'm using and I just hit save at the end of every day if I've made any changes. So whilst we're in rehearsals and previews, stuff's changing quite often. And even if you've just moved the level a little bit, you need to be saving that yeah. all the time because the sound guys love consistency. Um, they quite happily, uh, you know, they, they want everything the same every time. They want you to hit the, the snare the same volume. They want everything nice and then they can make it sound amazing out front because they know what they're going to get. Uh, so the exciting bits of the music where you don't quite know what's going to happen or you do a weird effect that may or may not work, uh, they hate it out front because they don't know what they're going to get wicked at one point they moved all the mics around and there's a couple of uh you know swanny whistles they yeah. slide whistle thing uh there's a few of those and they moved the mic and the mics are all black and it's quite dark in the pit and i couldn't see them and i ended up 
blowing this whistle straight into the mic and apparently out front or because I'm not shy with it you know if you're going to do an effect like that you either give it one or don't bother at all as far as I'm concerned the sound hole of the of the whistle was pointing straight on axis down the mic so apparently all you could hear out front was hurricane slide whistle um and and h the head of sound came running in went, dude the mic's there don't do that don't do it. so the sound guys love some consistency so i've got with the with the, with the dtx i'll have spare power supply i have spare leads uh to go to the di boxes so generally on that we'll take stereo out and go into two di boxes and then the sound guys deal with it from there yeah. So that may be their leads. If it's theirs, I'll ask them to leave some spares right by it. So if it starts crackling or something, it's a literally a five-second job to swap it out. You don't have to go, oh, we need a we need a jack to XLR for the DI box, and then they've got to go off to a cupboard and find it. That's that's not really cool no. as far as I'm concerned. And the same with the triggers I'm sorting out for my Phantoms. They'll be spare. I think I said before we'll have spare triggers on the Timps, so I'll probably have two on the Timps. So when one goes down, the mic will still open because the other one will be working. And that will be part of their checks every day is to make sure at least one of the triggers is triggering, ideally mm. both. So, yeah, you just have to assume things are going to go wrong because they do, you know. Um, the number of times I've seen guitarists with their amazing rig you know, all these pedal boards and the power supply goes and they're left with no sound at all. And this sort of panicked, terrified look on their face when they've lost all their sounds and they can't do the gig at all. You know, it's not like, you know, us with acoustic instruments. I'll always go out on a gig with two snares these days. I don't think it's cool to be sat on stage. And, you know, I mean, I don't generally hit that hard on gigs because you don't need to. But even if I'm out with an orchestra where you, you don't play very loud at all normally, uh, I'll still have a spare snare in a in a in a soft case by my floor tom just in case, and usually the same with a bass drum pedal as well, um, and a hi hat clutch. Hmm. That's sort of the minimum. If one of the cymbals goes, I've got other cymbals. If one of the toms goes, I've got other toms. But kick snare, hi hat, be good to have those generally. The essentials. Really, yes. <laughs> okay, so what about click tracks? Click tracks go wrong so often, and it's because people who are operating them quite often don't understand what we need yeah so i did a thing this weekend that i can't tell you what it was but i did a, quite a big high profile gig this weekend and the click tracks were being sent to us from uh, the broadcaster the broadcaster there Thank we go you. let's put it like that yeah from the broadcaster and we did a rehearsal and we had a few problems and at one point we had a lot of track and not very much click which wasn't very helpful because we're trying to play along to tracks of us that were pre-recorded we eventually got that sorted out, got to the gig where there was no sound check, no rehearsal because of the nature of the event, walked out and all we had was track. They'd forgotten to turn the clicks on in our monitors. So we had uh, quite an eggy half an hour of trying to play along to stuff. But, but when everyone plays on beat one and then there's nothing for two or three beats, it's quite hard to be, <laughs> to be accurate. Now, luckily, it was covered by voiceovers and, and crowd noise and stuff. So uh, I don't think you would have known from out front but you would think when you get to that kind of level that stuff stuff never goes wrong and actually quite often it's all in the hands of one technician who may or may not understand what's happening i don't get asked to set up clicks very often but when i do there's a couple of things i always think about which is it's got to have direction on it yeah i saw a gig years ago i was doing a big it's a big charity concert actually and uh, I was in the, the sort of house orchestra, if you will, and we had a fairly big pop band at the time come on with a mate of mine on drums. And the song was, to, was like a four or five piece band and the song was to click because there was loads of backing vocals in the chorus. And on the gig, the guy hit the click track 
and at the, the, the front of the tune there was just four straight clicks with nothing to tell you which was which. So you get click, 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 start playing. He hit start, and I don't know if it's gated or just their monitors weren't working or hadn't warmed up or what, but they heard the two, three, and four clicks. They didn't hear the first one. But there's no way of them knowing that. So, And there's nothing in the intro or the verse of the click. It's just vocals in the chorus. So they played merrily along, playing to the, the track, all sounding great. And on beat four of the end of the verse, all the chorus vocals came in. And you could see this panicked look on the face of everyone. It's like, what? there's no way of fixing that, really. It's, no. it's horrific. And that was all for the sake of them putting a piece of audio on the front of the click that said, one, two, three, four. Yeah. You know, so these days, mostly people are pretty good at sorting that out. And we also get count-ins to, so on Thriller, there's count-ins to big sections. Yeah. Um, you know, if we've, like some of the songs, I'm trying to think of one that has a count-off at the end. Billie Jean, for instance, has a count-off at the end because you played the same. The drummer's played, boom, bat, boom, bat, boom, bat, for six minutes by that point. So there's a big count-off at the end, and I have to hit a reverse symbol on beat three of that count that then finishes the number. And when you've done two shows that day and you haven't had any sleep because the baby's been up all night throwing up or whatever, that's a godsend. Stuff like that. And the other thing is is when there's when stuff slows down or, or speeds up, people never put subdivisions in. Hmm. And it's so easy to make that stuff work well and you'd be gobsmacked. You know, I have to go and say to the sound guy, look, it'd be really helpful if when it's getting slower, the beat's subdivided so we can... Um, so we could do a good job and yeah. sound like we're playing with the track, not just guessing. Mm. And usually they're very open to it. I actually did an album a few years ago where it was a very famous vocalist from Europe doing a, an album with an orchestra. And she got this arranger over from Hollywood who was quite new and fresh and was doing all these exciting ideas and weird harmony. I think after every take, someone in the orchestra put their hand up and said, um, do, do you want those notes? You know, it's that kind of stuff. But actually, the end result sounded really good. But there was one track where me and uh, the bass player were playing semi-quavers. So I was playing semis on the bass drum. He was playing semis on the bass. But it was really slow. It was like 52. And in the chorus, it went down to 47. Yeah. <laughs> and the click was at 52. Yeah. And then went down to 40. So I said, could we, um, just for that tempo change... It doesn't sound like much, but that that's, tempo that's is actually quite a big slope, gap, yeah. and it's quite scary. Could we possibly put some subdivisions in? I said, no, 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 that'll wreck the organic feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, if you want an organic feel, that's exactly what you're going to get. <laughs> whilst three of us in different rooms try to try to nail the difference between those two tempos whilst playing continuous semiquavers, but they seemed happy with it in the end. So, who knows? Well, who knows? But. But yeah, and and the other stuff. I mean, I've the number of times things go wrong on shows. I've done a whole verse and chorus. I think it was on Thriller actually. Again, with the one of the leads pulled slightly out of the back of the the SBDSX yeah. with the most horrific sounds you've ever heard. Oh no, it was the power. The power lead was coming out. No, oh, no. Uh, so you imagine it sat there for years and years and years, getting hit really hard, eight times a week, and the power lead started to wriggle out. And there's this horrendous sort of <laughs> sounds coming from... And I'm looking at the keyboard player thinking, guys, why don't you sort this out? And eventually I could see the MD frantically waving at me saying, it's you. <laughs> and uh, so we just had to turn it off, plug everything, un unplug everything and plug it back in again, turn it back on during the show, and then it was absolutely fine. So the unit was perfect. It was the, um, 
it was just the power supply working its way loose, which, I, you know, after a couple of years of being belted, I um, yeah. think it's fair enough, yeah. you know, it's a fair game. And now we know to check it every so often. And there's not a lot you can do about that, really. You know, I, I don't know any piece of gear that's, that's supposed to sit there for three or four years and never need any attention. No, no, of course not. You know, so that's fair enough. So stuff like that, you just have to take care of and, and be a bit aware. When you see other people come in or when you get other people, when you get new people coming into your world, is there anything that you feel people should have known before and they, they, they don't? And you're thinking, right, if there's one thing, you really should have known before you come in it's this what would it be oh man well there's loads but the one relative for us i think is that it's really important you know the stuff that you're using you've got to know really well yeah um i read this great article in sound on sound years ago from a guy talking about getting sounds together quickly on sessions and he basically said it's better to have three really nice he was actually talking about soft synths and keyboard sounds. He said it's better to have two or three really nice sounds that you know are going to be good than to have every sample library ever made and not be able to find a single thing on it quickly. Yeah. Because no one wants to sit around for half an hour whilst you, you know, it's not really cool to sit there and read the manual unless they've asked you for something crazy. And usually when I'm in rehearsals, it's costing a lot of money. Yeah. You know, we're in a room that they've paid for that costs quite a bit. And, you know, even a small band might be five or six people. Um, so you're talking best part of a thousand pounds an hour. Uh, the band on Willows is four, 14, 15. A lot of us are playing four or five instruments. They're all on quadrupling or quintupling, which means big fees, which means every rehearsal per minute costs a lot of money. The same in the studio. It's costing a lot of money. So yeah. you don't want to be the guy that, that takes 20 minutes to find a noise. So if you're going to take something in, you really, really need to know what's going on. Yeah. You know, I knew I was going to get thrown stuff on Willow. Simon, the supervisor, is the least technological person on the face of the earth. His best friend bought him a phone and an iPad and set them up for him. And he's just about, <laughs> you know, he's not texting in caps anymore, put it that way. But but he just, he just doesn't care. You know, he'll say to me, right, uh, just do this. And you and me know that that whatever thing he's asked for might be 20 minutes of programming. He doesn't care. He just wants it. And what I've learned over the years is instead of saying, okay, I've got, I can do that, but I need 20 minutes, you either say yes and get it done in about 30 seconds. So if he says, have you got a higher pitched cowbell sound? Have you got a nicer mark tree or something? You say yes, or you straight away say, not right now. I can fix it later. Can we move on? Yeah. And those two are perfectly acceptable. What's not cool is to sit there for 20 minutes going, uh, oh, I know I had it here. Oh, hang on. Uh, you can't do that. It's a yeah. massive waste of time and he'll get annoyed and you don't want people annoyed with you, you know? Yeah. So you've got to know your stuff really well. So if that question comes up, you've got to be able to sort it quickly or just put your hands up and say, I'm not sure I'll fix it in the break yeah. and spend a bit of your own time on it. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. We're in a situation where drummers are being asked to run clicks on shows and gigs so Ed Carlisle at Dreamgirls, and he's got two of those Roland Bar, what are they, the BT1s? BT1s, yeah. 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 yeah, he's got two of those pads, one of which I believe is start and stop, and one is next click or something like that. He's got two pads. He triggers about half the clicks in the show, I believe, uh, which means that they don't have to have a count-off because the, the way Dreamgirls work, there's not time for a count-off. They say a line and bang, you're straight into a song. So Ed hits beat one on the bass drum and the cymbal, and he's hitting the pad at the same time, and there's a click there straight away for everyone. If he doesn't know how to fix a problem, so if the wrong click fires, how do you stop it and get rid of it? Yeah. If it's triggered badly, can we shift it? Can you restart it? All of those things. You need to know all of that before you go in. 
what is, as you see it as a musician, what is the biggest problem with electronic drums? Is it is it the fact that it doesn't make you go, whoa, when you get in the pit and you see a, a, an e-kit or, or a mallet cat or something? Uh, what's preventing electronics being used in everything, every single pit? Is it dynamics? Okay, so I, I would say, I think probably expression and dynamics would be the two biggest things as well as obviously sound the way i think about this sometimes is is pianos and keyboards now i've i've got some friends who are phenomenal keyboard and piano players and i did a gig at christmas actually with a guy called andy vinter who's keys one online king and he was in cadogan hall playing on the steinway grand piano they've got there and i'd done a thing with him the week before on his keyboards including a big sample of a steinway no yeah. comparison Samples sound fantastic, by the way. They're, you know, it sounds brilliant. Real Steinway on a real stage in a room, completely different experience. It's just, it's just a different thing. And I think it's the same with, with V-drums. You, you sort of have to think of them like they're a different instrument almost. You, you get a very similar sound at the end of the day out front sometimes, but it's not the same thing. I believe there was a show not that long ago in town where they, the, the sound crew insisted on starting with V-drums and the composer was actually going to bin the show. He was actually going to not do it because the band just didn't sound very good and it was all about the music and he was like, this just isn't working. So it's um, someone who's rich enough that they can... Um, cancel a show. They can afford to just cancel a show. Fine, I won't do it. It doesn't matter. You know, They're not doing it for the money anymore, should we say. Yeah, it's no. not that hard to work out. But what happened was great big panic. Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And and one of the guys said, look, I think it would feel a lot better if we had real drums. So they sent a taxi for, for the drummer's acoustic kit that was sat at home not being used, brought it in, mic'd it up quickly. Band sounded fantastic. Everyone's super happy. So, yeah, I guess, I guess the problems are, that, like we talked about before, I, I play with a really big dynamic range and it's quite a bit more than 0 to 127 or 1 to 128. You know, that there's a ceiling to that stuff. And that's sort of the biggest battle I have when I'm playing electronics with a, with an orchestra or something is trying to blend in. You know, if I'm playing my timps or my glock or my, my drums, I can play really quietly and then I can really go loud when I need to. And with the electronic stuff, you need to sort of program that in a bit beforehand if you want want it to happen. You know, you've sort of got an inbuilt range that's not very big and you have to work around that i've got a number in willows which is a fade in from nothing uh on real instruments that's no problem and on on willows i've had to set up two sets of pads so i've got the left hand side of the m12 is super quiet and then i as soon as i'm maxing out on that i move over to the next set of pads with the same sounds and they're the next dynamic range up very clever um yeah i wish um <laughs> uh, when it works it's fine <laughs> it's when you forget or you i have this thing sometimes if you're tired you go to play it and you think is it this where where am i st oh no i've missed it you know which which set of pads should i've been playing on and it's already too late i guess that's the, the big thing is is it, it's a different instrument so sometimes it's just not suitable if you look at something what's big so 42nd street's just opened in town yeah you're never ever going to do that with electronic drums no you know, it's like the guy turning up with a Rhodes piano. It's, it's just the wrong thing. It's, it's not the right instrument, you know. So I don't think they're ever going to be completely ubiquitous. You know, that's that's just not going to happen. But for certain things, they're totally like Thriller. It's the right thing. It's the right instrument for the job. Have you been in a situation where you've listened to something and then afterwards you found out it was electronics where you just had presumed it was acoustic to start with? I'm sure there's records yeah with you know obviously i mean i'm a massive fan of superior drummer yeah. embarrassingly i bought I, I'm, I'm just looking up at a big uh, 
shelf in my studio with all of the expansion packs, all of the SDX packs. Mine are all down here, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, except you use yours, and I've never used mine. I bought them all, and I've used them a couple of times for demos. I've never used them and earned money from them yet. I need to get more into that. So the superior sounds, I think, are fabulous. The internal sounds, so the, the, the units in use that use complete just synthesis you can hear it. You can hear it out front. You can hear it's not a real thing, I think. I, I certainly can. And I know my mates who've been to see shows with their wives or something said, yeah, you can tell it's speed drums a mile off. There's weird, there's just triggering things that happen that don't happen with acoustic drums and stuff like that. And there's just, you can hear sometimes the guy does a fill. You're like, yeah, you won't, that's not on acoustic drums. Yeah. You know, very flash. Well done. You sound great, but but busted for being too good almost, you know. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you've got your mesh heads, it's easy to, to roll around, go, hello girls, or boys, <laughs> you know. Uh, so stuff like that catches out. But on recorded stuff with Superior, I, I mean, it's samples. So anytime you use a sample properly, how, how can you possibly tell? Yeah. You know, the ones I use on Willows, it's me into the mic that would be used on the show at the right dynamics, played at the... There's no difference as far as I can, you know, from my from my perspective, I can either play it into the mic live every day or I can hit the pad and it triggers the same sound. Mm. So, so yes, yeah, synthesized sounds, sorry, they're, they're really good, but it's not the same thing. You know, it's Diet Coke and Coke, isn't it? It's You, you can tell. <laughs> Do you think this is where electronics is, is headed? Do you think the next big thing needs to be sound improvement or is it the dynamics improvement or, or what? So I, I've got the Yamaha 950K. The sounds on that are really nice, and I use that for rehearsals on Willows. But the big problem for us was dynamics in the in the room. Trying to match the dynamics with a piano through a PA and stuff it w- was quite tricky. I, I would love to just have a set of drums that are just triggers and go straight into the laptop, and I can use Superior, or I think you've said to me, I think it was you said to me, to to get the, the use Easy X live. Easy Drummer. Easy Drummer too. Yeah, there you go. So if there was a set of pads and I could just plug straight into that and use them, that would be amazing. That's all I really want. I, I don't need loads of internal sounds and, and bells and whistles. So maybe the trap cat might be, for, for guys that don't know, the people that make mallet cats make a thing called a trap cat that looks like a huge dinner tray with lots of pads on and they get used. Have you interviewed John? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He okay. will be, his interview will be up before this goes out. So, okay. Yes. Okay. So John uses the, the trap cat on tours with howard jones and i've seen little clips and it you know it looks like a bloke sat at a sat at a, a slanty desk sounds fantastic you know and he's he's amazing at programming you know he's mm. you know electronic hero the best description of it i heard was somebody sitting at an ironing board and that's what it looks like actually isn't it it does a bit but you've got loads of pads there you can yeah. trigger lots of sounds and that gives you the opportunity to have um, a quarter open hi hat, a closed hi hat, half open, uh, and stuff in between, and make it more lifelike. Mm. You know, I mean, yesterday I was uh, doing all these ABBA things. You listen to the hi hat playing from what's the guy's surname? It's Ola. Ola Brunkert. Brunkert. There you go. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Ola Ola Brunkert. I spent a few days just checking out all the tracks, and the more you listen to them, you know, you start to hear all the subtleties. Mm. And one of the lovely things is he's only playing bass drum, snare drum and hats and he does tons of different sounds on the hi-hats yeah. you know some lovely stuff where instead of an open he'll do a, a like a, a shoulder accent having played with the tip beforehand and then he doesn't open after it's just brilliant so you get all those lovely sounds so you can do that with a trap cat you mm. can um 
you can, you've got enough pads to program in all of those things. And to be fair, the, 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 you know, you've got three zone hi hats now, so you can, you can start to get tip and shoulder and, and stuff like that going on. And they don't do, I remember back in the day on the, was it the original TD 10, you had to duck the hi hat fader and put your foot down and then yes. put it back up. If you wanted to start a number with closed hi hats and you weren't already with your foot down, yeah. it would always make some kind of chick sound on the way down. It would always trigger, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, which they've solved now, you know, but I remember that, that was the big thing. I think it tell me on a Sunday, Andy, Andy had to duck the hi-hat pedal every time he wanted to start a song uh, and then remember to turn it back up or you were in real trouble. You know, <laughs> you know, no, no hi-hats. So maybe, maybe something like that would be the way forward for me. You know, laptops are so powerful now. I can't remember the last time I saw a sampler that wasn't being used in a retro ironic mm kind of way always provided with a mallet cap because you only need six sounds and they've got those six sounds and they sound fine so they're loaded in and that's just the thing that comes from the hire company but these days every keyboard in the west end is going into a laptop yeah you know, it's, it's max everywhere or or into a like a mac mini in a rack yeah kind of thing so that's i guess the way forward for us is the latency an issue for you? Not that I've noticed. I've had problems with triggering on various A and other brand of um, tuned percussion trigger. I've had loads of problems with, with triggering. So you hit two notes and only one speaks. And if you're doing a scale in thirds or fifths or something, instead of getting a scale in fifths, you end up with this weird just like random notes coming out it just sounds completely wrong uh so i've had problems with that if you're playing drums if you're playing superior drummer or, or something like that d uh, uh, off a laptop yeah i mean i i make sure i've optimized a laptop yeah. you know you've got that whatever it is the turbo boost button or thing whatever it is in logic the low latency mm -hmm. mode and you just have to make sure you set your, your buffers and, and all of that stuff um, I can never remember what you have to do, but I've got it written down to when I have to do that stuff. Do you feel there is a difference from when you're triggering an actual drum module to when you are actually trig triggering from a laptop? Do, can you feel a difference, or, or do you think that's a psychological thing? No. I, don't, I, I mean, I haven't spent enough time trying to compare the two. I've never done a gig where I've or a recording session where I've, I've had to play through both, so that's never been an issue. And I think, hopefully, I'm good enough that if I need to, I can compensate for it a bit. So when we play stuff in the orchestra... The certain instruments don't speak as well as others. So you have to play a bit early if you don't want to sound late. You know, I guess the obvious example of something that takes a while to bloom would be a tam-tam. Mm. You know, if you hit a tam-tam on beat one, you don't hear it until halfway through that beat, maybe, properly. You know, it takes that long to get going. So what, what you generally do is warm it up a bit beforehand if you if you want you want it to have an attack bang on the beat you know quite often it doesn't matter because there's other stuff happening so it can bloom a bit late so hopefully i compensate if there's a bit of latency just naturally without thinking about it um i know i do on thriller actually when i play keyboards on thriller there's a string patch on one of the keyboards and it speaks so late that i'm i'm playing like a semi-quaver ahead of the the, the, the click wow. it's, it's that much so that the strings sound vaguely in time Otherwise, you get this weird thing where it sort of fades up afterwards. And, and I think that's what a lot of the keyboard players do on a lot of things. You know, a really skilled mm. keyboard player, it sounds in time, but he might be playing a beat early to get the sound to speak. Yeah, no, I think I uh, think what you said about being more flexible, I think you learn in an orchestra because you're so far away from the conductor. Yeah. You, you've just got to, you know, preempt everything. Uh, you, you've got to be apprehensive of everything. Uh, and I did a really interesting experiment once when I was um, helping with a, a youth orchestra where I stood where the, where the conductor was and I got them all to play with their backs to me. Uh, but I played a cowbell, so that, that was their time reference. Right. And I got all the other percussionists to stand up near me. So they had, so the, the actual percussion section had to play 
in time with me when they heard me rather sure. than visually see me. So you had the delay from the or from the conductor to the percussion section and then back. Yeah. And it was massive. I mean, people don't appreciate how what the time delay from the back of an orchestra to the conductor is. I've had a really I've done two gigs at the Albert Hall in the last week. It's been fantastic. So I've just done one on drums where I was sat pretty close to the conductor. And then I did this uh, Magic FM, Magic at the Musicals thing the week before. And I was playing mostly timps, actually, right on the back row of the stage. And what you don't realise when you look at people playing there is you can't hear anything. Back there, all you get is this mush of sound. You can't hear anything properly. So I spent the entire night playing on, right on the conductor's downbeat. But it sounds wrong. It feels like you're wrong. All the xylophone stuff, the notes sound wrong, the, the timing sounds completely out, and you just have to sort of head down. And do, and that's the real, uh, you know, people don't appreciate orchestral percussion sometimes. The, the guys are playing, and it sounds, in their head, it sounds completely wrong. And out front, it sounds amazing. Yeah, I've done a, I've done a tiny bit of work at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, and the setup for the, for the show I was doing had the trumpets and trombones on one end of the pit and the horns at the other end of the pit. Uh, and it's something they do quite often. And you're sat in the middle. I was playing bass drum. At times, it sounds like they're completely out, like nowhere near each other. Like we better stop. And out front, apparently, it sounds amazing. And it, you know, well, that orchestra is unbelievable. But when you sat in the pit, it it actually sounds wrong. Yeah. You know, and and that's something we don't get. You know, it's terrifying for me when I go out onto a, onto a real acoustic gig, having been sat in a pit. So for guys that don't know, in in the West End. Uh, and lo- lots of gigs these days have like personal monitoring things. So Avium do one, Roland yeah. do a great one, and the sound guys can control it from their end as well, which is amazing. If you're having real problems, they can fix it whilst you're playing. I use the Allen and Heath. They've got the Allen and Heath one on uh, Willows, which is also really, really good. It's quite powerful. You can get into the programming on from your end and do some quite cool stuff. So I'm used to having really direct sound, exactly what I want to hear. So I can have certain things. I might have the click say 70 percent and the rest of the guys at 10 percent and i know what's going on in the song but i'm playing with a click and no one can knock me off it because no one can yeah. play loud enough to, to to put me off whereas when you're live on stage with an orchestra you hear what you hear you know um if they change the setup of the orchestra you might not hear anything at all from one set you know if the horns are on the other side of the stage you might not hear them all night long that gig i did last week i played timps i didn't hear i heard the brass because they were next to me i could hear the strings I don't think I heard a single woodwind note when I was playing. I, there's a story which I'm pretty sure isn't apocryphal. That uh, there's a drummer who was asked to play with an orchestra, and he had no experience playing with an orchestra. Yeah. It was being recorded, and he was set up at the back, and uh, you know he he was a typical sort of pop drummer, head down, playing yeah. along to what he was hearing, and then they listened back to the recording. And he was a 16th out consistently throughout the whole gig. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. And um, <laughs> yeah, playing playing drums with an orchestra is a whole thing on its own, you know. Mm. And I'm what I'm nearly 40 now, and I'm still, you know, I do it quite a lot, and it's still terrifying. And I'm still mm. learning every day, you know, how to how to cope with certain situations. And there's times, you know, I was, we were doing some numbers yesterday, and I was just playing hi hats as a timekeeper. And nothing sounds like they're with me at all. And everything in your sort of musical brain is screaming at you to move to where they are so it sounds right. And you have to just keep plowing on. This is where it's going. I'm not moving. I'm not moving. I'm not moving. And just keep playing. And out front, it sounds good. 
yeah. where you are is horrible. It's really yeah. horrible and it's wrong. And I think another big problem these days is we all play to backing tracks and recordings a lot. You know, why would you not? I've got all the all the teaching books I use. I I I, I pop them on. I stick them in Logic and play along and record myself and play with different sounds and mic positions and and stuff. But you're used to the band being bang on in time and you can hear them perfectly and everything. And then you get out on a real gig. You know, I'm I'm, ho- I'm hopefully going to join a big band, just like a local community thing, just to get out and play. And um, you go and play the big band thing. I'm probably not going to hear some of the some of the sections at all. And I'm so used to like the Peter Erskine app. I don't know if you've seen that. It's yeah, phenomenal. Very good. And you can turn the bass up. You can turn the guitar. You've got all these mixing options for your your you know your monitoring pleasure. You don't get any of that on a real gig. It's really scary. And I think we all get a bit spoiled with with sitting in our practice rooms playing along to perfect sounding stuff. So it's really important to go out and, and face the fear and be that uncomfortable, you know. That is a perfect place to finish. Excellent. That is a, a soundbite finish. That is an absolutely <laughs> perfect soundbite finish. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Subscribe to eDrumInfo.com. Go to www.edruminfo.com for more.